Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of Innovation and Compliance. Today, you are in for a real treat because I have Tim Estes. Tim is the president and founder at Digital Reasoning. Digital Reasoning has a series of what I think are incredibly innovative tools around uh, unstructured data and how you can use those in a best practices compliance program, moving from your detect prong to the prevent prong and, and perhaps even the prescription prong. So uh, Tim has a really interesting background that we're going to get into. Uh, so we're going to hop right into it. So Tim, welcome and thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Tim, uh, I was intrigued to read on your LinkedIn profile that uh, you founded uh, Digital Reasoning while in college and not as an IT or computer science college undergrad, but as a uh, someone uh, seeking a BA from philosophy from the University of Virginia. So I was wondering if you might be able to start out with telling us what's the convergence of uh, philosophy at the University of Virginia and uh, digital reasoning. Yeah, well, it, it is funny how things play out. Um, but I, I, I think with the background I had in philosophy was focused on what words mean uh, and why they mean that. And, and basically, what are the patterns in language that uh, you can look at uh, to find out uh, meaning in a more objective fashion. So essentially, uh, it was akin to some of the foundations in computer science. Um, in fact, if, if you kind of trace computer science back, a lot of the uh, early 20th century pieces that led to people like Alan Turing uh, were a, a very big investigation in the philosophy of mathematics. And uh, and some of those people in the philosophy of mathematics that were very influential from Bertrand Russell, uh, who basically invented one of the symbolic logics, uh, and then one of the students, uh, Louis Wittgenstein, uh, they ended up looking at how uh, Wittgenstein especially had a very strong tilt toward language and understanding language. And uh, and so my interest was, could you bridge this systematic understanding of language essentially as a system of symbols and use algorithms to look at invariance and patterns and, and, and sort of change in symbol use over time to figure out what words mean without a human in the loop? So in, in the current machine learning and AI context, this was about using unsupervised learning uh, to figure out what words mean. And this was fairly early because this work was, you know, early 2000s, 2001, 2004 range. Uh, and so we were one of the few people doing it and doing it with any success. Um, and, and while Google and others would come along in this area about a decade later and do some things that are similar, um, you know, we were fairly early and we were making it work on very hard and noisy data, really in the defense intelligence community for some time. So, so my, my confluence was basically, you know, I was always, I grew up as a geek, you know, I was working on computers when I was 10 years old. Uh, and the philosophy side of this uh, was really the, the theory um, behind the algorithms and then essentially working on how do you implement that? How do you, you know, uh, I guess when you're choosing in life between being a, you know, a practitioner and a, an ed educator, um, you know, you, you have different things that attract you. One is, you know, how do you take an idea and explain it, defend it, which is where philosophers, especially in the graduate level, tend to go. Uh, and then there's sort of the, this sort of very pragmatic streak, which is, if this theory is true, you should be able to write code and show it to work. And therefore, you know, digital reasoning's fundamental um, algorithms, patents. In fact, I think there's another one just got yesterday uh, awarded uh, that goes back you know, many years. Th those that intellectual property was taking that 
philosophical theory of language uh, that I was working on and then applying it uh, via algorithms to build up structures of, you know, uh, how can you identify that three people are the same person when only one of them is called by name and the other two are called by code names like the sheik or something. And the way you do it is you look at how that word is used in context over time and you figure out, you know, uh, truthful um, or necessary relationships uh, and back into, you know, a, a function of resolving an entity. You know, how do you basically link them together? Um, and if you can't link them 100% by having enough evidence to do so, you can at least say they're highly associated. Uh, and so we were doing that like very, very early. There were very few people that had done anything in that space. We, you know, I cite them in some of my patents, but no one had used sort of advanced NLP on top of some of that work and extending from that work to be able to do what we were doing. And, and that led to things like sole source contracts and government in very competitive circumstances, and then InQtel to invest. And, and eventually over a decade later, after the government had essentially uh, proven it out and, and used it at some scale, um, we landed at Goldman Sachs and some other places and, and they, they basically started looking at it in terms of email and chat. So, so it's a funny journey to go from philosophy you know, to running, you know, the emails and chats to some of the world's most valuable investment banks and largest investment banks. Uh, but it, it's all started with a theory turning into algorithms, turning into a system that worked. So, Tim, you mentioned um, emails and chats, and I really wanted to use that to introduce the topic of uh, structured versus unstructured data. I think many compliance practitioners understand at least what structured data is, and they're beginning to understand how that can be used in a best practices compliance program. But I don't think they have as much uh, as deep an understanding of what unstructured data is and how it can also be used. Could you uh, give us a few um, thoughts about what is unstructured data and then move to uh, why AI is so useful with unstructured data? Sure. Yeah, no, I, I think so. Unstructured data, uh, you know, technically speaking, unstructured data means essentially data that is captured in a more natural form and not organized in a way that a machine can understand. So the ultimate contrast is data that's captured in databases like transactions is highly structured. Data that's you know written communications, documents, and content is not structured. Um, on the on the far end of unstructured is things like video, um, where you're really taking natural signals, things that humans are able to find patterns in and turn into abstractions, and then you know make inferences from. Um, that that's typically been a sign of human level intelligence. Um, or sorry, that's not a sign of human intelligence, but, but a, a sign that a human level intelligence was necessary to process something. Um, we've seen that bridge, uh, the, the gap be bridged in the last few years because pattern recognition via lots of training data through deep learning has allowed us to categorize and classify some things that really wasn't very effective before, but it's also struggling to abstract. And so there aren't many AI systems today that are able to really abstract like a human does. Language is interesting because it kind of sits mostly toward the unstructured end of the spectrum, um, but it is actually something that has a lot of depth and meaning. I would argue that human language and textual data is actually much more complicated than video data uh, because video data, for the most part of the way it's processed, is about you know, finding invariant patterns moving you know, in, a, in a set of frames and then tagging what they are and then trying to organize that. But once you start taking you know, that it's a person, a person sitting here, and you turn it into a scene, it actually starts looking a lot like text data. It's actually trying to fit it into a world of, of background knowledge and meaning. Now, why is this super important when it comes to compliance and risk? Well, as it turns out, most people act uh, after having thought about something, you know, and especially when you're 
talking about actually a, a premeditated activity like fraud, uh, premeditated activity like bribery. They, they have an intent, which is to do something that they know is not, not good. They have to think through how they do it. Um, they sometimes have to act with other people in coordination or collusion to do it. And, and so it is very extraordinary for those people to do all that uh, and never let on uh, either literally that they're going to do something, you know, like discuss potentially uh, in insider trading, discuss a company in some code language and, and, the and, and the fact they may be doing a deal or an acquisition or maybe having disappointments in some code language and then switching from that kind of intro conversation to something much more detailed offline. So you'll see things like, you know, coded language um, and then a switch of venue or channel and then you'll see them go dark. Like that's a moderately common occurrence for sophisticated parties. Uh, it, it's most of the systems today are so unsophisticated. However, they're lexicon based. They're based on keywords, based on very basic NLP, like pulling out companies and, and things like that. Uh, and while we were among the first to do that at each scale, so we, we kind of invented that to a wave uh, along with Goldman and some others. Uh, and I say it not too arrogantly. We just, we had to live through everyone <laughs> being asked, asking us why it was important. And now everyone knows it's important and it's obvious. And now we're having to basically say, well, that's important, but actually even more important is the, is the early signs of intent. Things like um, you know, secrecy language, rumor language, things that require actually a very different kind of technology than pulling out people, places, and things uh, to execute. And also require technology in an area called machine education, uh, which may or may not be something you've, you've heard of before. But basically there's an area now emerging, which is, um, all these projects doing AI require you to educate the machine. And a lot of times, um, when you look at really subtle problems or company-level problems, the data is not there to educate the machine. It's like asking a kid to do something and having no curriculum to teach them. So what happens is these companies spend massive amounts of money with large companies or small companies uh, trying to teach the machine through data scientists and a very specialized process, and then to being expensive and taking a lot of time. And after a while, they throw in the towel. They basically say this doesn't work. So, so we've gone through and successfully educated the machine, but we did so with data scientists and, and talented people. And now we realize, well, that's great, but you know, we're not a services company. We, we actually know we have to have technology that solves that problem. Uh, and so I get onto this because, number one, if you go down this problem two levels, unstructured data is important because it, it shows you the smoking gun ahead of the action, but it also can show you early intent from very sophisticated actors who know how to evade the system. And if your, your solution doesn't have those two pieces, you're left reacting to transactions, you know, reacting to, quote, behaviors, which are really just fairly simple counting of metadata. Um, and, and I honestly think in the current market, very few people should be paying for software vendors to count metadata, uh, you know, like who talks to who. You, know, you can go train your own IT people in a data science course for you know, $10,000 and get the same stuff. So uh, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors in this market in terms of good-looking demos, things that are interesting visualizations, and all they're really doing is counting metadata. The real innovation in the market is how do you take human language and early clues that's human-like intelligence and find them, and how do you have the best experts uh, teach that? And, and you know, digital reasoning has some experts, but on the end, the best expert is the customer themselves. They know what they missed before, and they know the obligation from the CEO down and the board on down to never hit it, have it happen again. So if you can't educate the machine, you can't transfer that into your systems. And, uh, and without that, you know, ultimately you're going to keep seeing the same things break, no matter how good the visualization is. 
So, Tim, that really leads into the next point I wanted to raise with you, which is you've articulated uh, a very good strategy and reason around utilizing this tool innovatively for uh, a compliance program for the moving from detect to prevent. But where I see this going is, and where I see compliance going, is to become a true business process, which not only makes a company run efficiently, but actually more profitably. So I was wondering if you might be able to tell us, uh, give us some thoughts on how AI helps companies to actually operate in a more business efficient efficient manner. Yeah, no, I mean, at the end of the day, the, the two things that AI, when it's so, we're, there's a lot of hype around AI, right? And there's tons of, of media, popular attention, and we spend as much time worrying about it becoming the Terminator as we worry about actually creating ROI, uh, if not more, unfortunately, uh, because it's more salacious. Um, and so when you dig into it, though, the really effective return on investment from using AI generally falls into a couple of buckets. One is you capture a process which has points of human judgment, and you educate a machine how to make those same judgments, and you scale those judgments up. And so if you have a handful of experts that can only review a million emails a year, best case, and you have 10 billion you need to review, transferring the knowledge of those experts into the machine for some cases and having it run across all billion is a massive multiplication of value, and it takes those experts and now applies their time more efficiently. So scaling competence, scaling uh, intellectual expertise, and scaling value, that's actually, that sort of automation play is probably the most uh, effective ROI. So for instance, we've actually done something in the, in the healthcare space with HCA, where we did this to, to basically teach the system how to read doctor's notes, pathology reports, radiology reports, and be able to predict uh, cancer in occurrence based on early evidence in the notes. Uh, and, and while they have experts at HCA, some of the best in the world that can do that manually, like the idea that they should spend their time reading reports instead of spending time with patients is silly, right? And, and so I'm giving you a case beyond finance. I mean, my point is that really, when you're dealing with any subtle human judgment, uh, being able to pick up some of those and scale it is a massively useful and, and becoming necessary because you know, we're, we're not creating less data, right? So if we're creating data and we're making it so cheap to create data and propagate it, we actually have to have technologies that counter that and make it easy to process that with the same confidence because in regulations, you're held to the same standard. Like you, don't, you aren't held to a lower standard because you have 10 billion emails now when you had 100 million you know, a decade ago. So that's the problem, right? But, they don't, but you can't spend 100 times as much. So, so as a result, like you really have a necessity of innovation. So that's, that's one area is really automation and scale. Um, the second area is objectivity. So when you actually transfer this knowledge from a set of experts to a machine, the machine's going to make basically the same kind of judgment every time. Um, and therefore, when you point at a process, you can say, this was not just because this person thought this. You know, when I, when I drill into why do we not detect this or why did we detect it, it's not I had this expert and they missed it. It's I used every reasonable effort from all my experts to teach this thing and it missed it or it hit it, and this is why, this is my explanation. So it turns out that AI can make processes more objective. You can set a standard like, we, we define sexual harassment as this kind of behavior based on our code of conduct at the highest corporate level that the CEO you know, and their, their head of administration signs off of, presents to a board of directors, and they all you know, say, yes, this is right. It's not gonna happen here anymore. Well, then you have to implement the policy, and then you have to train people and you have to make sure that's consistent, and that's extremely expensive and also slow. So at least part of that, however, could be can you take the policy and have experts teach a machine to recognize indications of violations of that policy and scale that out? 
Now, I mentioned about the scale value, but the objectivity of that, of saying, this is a control we put in place. It's running against everything. Here is how it behaves. And it's always learning. In fact, you know, with our system, we can pick up all kinds of ways to learn from both the data and people's feedback. So as you deploy it at scale, you actually open up more opportunity to learn. Uh, and the final piece, I would say, and it's sort of the, it's sort of the mirror image to the first one about scale, uh, is it's not just scale of how much you can cover. No human can keep a single map of the behaviors of an organization in their brain at once. There are too many people in any scale. As soon as you get past a company with dozens of people, it's very hard for even a great executive to know how everyone's behaving. You know, at hundreds of people, it, it's a remarkable executive who even knows everybody's name. So when you think about that, a machine is a necessary piece of capability, I mean, it's a necessary infrastructure to link all this together and be able to have a full company-wide view. So any public company that's implementing a policy and wants to kind of measure everybody, it's going to be an automated process. It just can't humanly be done. So on the one hand, you can't handle the, the scale of data, the throughput. On the second, you get objectivity, or so you, uh, you can handle it with machines, you can't handle it with people. On the third hand, linking it all together is kind of a supervening value that lets you know the health of the whole thing, and that is necessarily beyond any one brain. So, so I think that that's transformational. Those three things turning into infrastructure and going away from essentially just human coordination and overhead, I mean, things that took weeks or months take seconds, and things that were impossible become possible. Um, and, and so that, that's what we want to unleash is we're, we're seeing this happen. We're seeing transformation of enterprises by laying this kind of technology down. And, uh, and we think honestly that, that as these things become standards over the next two to five years, and we think that nearly every tier one bank is going to go this direction. Actually, they all will. I don't say nearly, they all will. Um, most, any public company is going to have to have infrastructure like this over the next five years. Once this becomes a new standard, it's going to be like having personal computers all over again. You're going to be thinking of applications you can't even dream of right now because you'll take for granted the automation underneath it. And that's the really exciting thing. That's the thing that I think has, you know, industrial revolution level productivity implications for a lot of companies. Well, Tim, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, and that really seems like a great point for uh, us to end on. I greatly hope we can continue this conversation because uh, not only have I learned a lot, I'm uh, very, very, very interested in this. Uh, but I was wondering if uh, anyone wanted more information on digital reasoning, uh, where could they go? Well, I mean, as, as everything in the modern era, that we have, a, we have a great website that talks through some of our solutions, uh, so digitalreasoning.com. Um, you know, there's a lot of publications on that, on that site, some video clips. Uh, you know, there's some talks out there I've given about this area. Um, you know, I, I really, and, and frankly, we've been very blessed with uh, the kinds of people that have taken into the company. There's a, there's a really great Forbes article a year ago that kind of covered some of the history of the company and where we're, where we're implementing. There's recent articles uh, that have come out around the, the funding we've just gotten from you know, BNP and Barclays, two of the world's largest banks. So, so yeah, I, I would say that the, the website is something that should be interesting to talk about what we do. And then uh, there's some interviews that link off that and stories uh, that I think can give people a flavor of, of the kind of problems we're trying to solve, things that are worth solving, uh, like the things that your your podcast covers, you know, trying to make sure the you know the world is, is not just a safer place, but hopefully a more honest place. Well, Tim, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to visit with me, and I hope we can continue the conversation. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it very much. Make sure to check out Tom's latest book, The Complete Compliance Handbook, available at Amazon. It incorporates the most recent pronouncements and guidance from the Department of Justice, including 2017's Evaluation Corporate Compliance Programs and FCPA Corporate Enforcement Policy to provide the most up-to-date advice on what constitutes a best practices compliance program. Go to fcacompliancereport.com.